Good morning, Bokertov. Welcome to our Aliyah day. It is the first day of the week, and therefore a new parasha, parasha Shemini, which is uh, the eighth. So we uh, bless you. We had a great time last night at our our final uh, Purim celebration. Just a little Habdallah masquerade party. It was really a lot of fun. Had a Synagogue full of people. It's amazing. So hope everybody had a good time. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Had some uh, good opportunity to laugh and fellowship and enjoy themselves. And who doesn't like to dress up? Really, seriously. So anyway, it's fun. On to next year. Baruch Hashem. Next year's poem with God's help will be even bigger and even better. And we'll see what happens. Until then, we are now... Fast on our way to uh, the holiday of Pesach, right? We just have about, what, 27 days, I think it is, until Pesach. And uh, the Seder will be here before you know it. So make preparations now to, uh, uh, you know, rid your your home of hummus. This is not the time to go out and buy the 10-pound bag of pancake mix. And I would advise you to go ahead and use up all of your products that are not uh, kosher for Passover. And uh, try not to buy anything between now and then that isn't certified kosher for Passover. I would encourage you to do that, um, absolutely. So, Baruch Hashem. Oh, and a public service announcement, since I have you. I know that people watch from all over um, they, all over America and America and all over the world. But, uh, for those of you who live locally... I just want to say that there is a uh, Tom Thumb on Hewland Street here in Fort Worth. I've known about this Tom Thumb for a long time, but it seems lately, I was just talking to the store manager, or, or the, actually the wine manager, it wasn't the store manager, it was the wine manager last week, and uh, they seem to be doing more and more for uh, kosher you know, uh, observance or whatever. So the wine section was very great, and the uh, little kosher freezer section was nice and they are have a really starting to actually put out all the kosher for passover things so it's just a uh, if you live locally i just want to advise you you could go to that tom thumb they have a lot going on there and they seem to be uh very much interested in catering to us so brukashim for that all right so parasha shemini we are in the art scroll chumash and uh Chapter 9, the first Aliyah is chapter 9, 1 through 17. And so let me go ahead and read this, and then we'll get into the insights and find out what uh, you know what we're going to see here in this particular Aliyah, <coughs> and, and more generally throughout the rest of the Torah portion. Parashah Shemini, the first Aliyah, chapter 9, verse 1. It was on the eighth day, Moshe summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for an elevation offering, unblemished, and offer them before Adonai, and to the children of Israel speak as follows. Take a he-goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a sheep for their first year unblemished for an elevation offering, and a bull and a ram for a peace offering to slaughter before Adonai, and a meal offering mixed with oil. For today Adonai appears to you. They took what Moshe had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly approached and stood before Adonai. And Moshe said, This is the thing that Adonai has commanded you to do. Then the glory of Adonai will appear to you. 
And Moshe said to Aaron, Come near to the altar and perform the service of the sin offering and your elevation offering and provide atonement for yourself and for the people. Then the, perform the service of the people's offering and provide atonement for, for them. As Adonai has commanded, Aaron came near to the altar and slaughtered the sin off, offering calf that was his. The sons of Aaron brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger into the blood and placed it on the horns of the altar and poured the remaining blood upon the foundation of the altar. And the fats and the kidneys and the diaphragm with the liver of the sin offering he caused to go up and smoke on the altar. And Aaron had commanded, as Hashem Slika had commanded Moshe. And the flesh and the hide he burned in fire outside the camp. He slaughtered the elevation offering. The sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he threw it upon the altar all around. They presented the elevation offering to him in its pieces with its head, and he caused it to go up in the smoke on the altar. And he washed the innards and the feet and caused them to go up in smoke on the elevation altar. Excuse me. He caused them to go in smoke on the elevation offering <coughs> on the altar. He brought, verse 15, he brought near the offering of the people. He took the sin offering goat that was for the people and slaughtered and performed the sin offering service as for the first one. And he brought near the elevation offering and performed its service according to its law. So this uh, is obviously talking about the inauguration of the temple, the, excuse me, the tabernacle. And this is happening on the eighth day, obviously, which is why our parasha is named Shemini. For seven days previous to this, we have Moshe, who has been setting up the tabernacle and taking it down, setting it up, taking it down, setting up, taking it down for seven full days. But it was on the eighth day that Aaron and his sons became officially the Kohanim. And therefore, it's on the eighth day that the glory of God is going to fall and is going to ignite the fire of the altar. That's what we're experiencing here. The chapter begins on the first day of the month of Nisan. So this is uh, where we are finding ourselves on the timeline. This uh, inauguration day, this, this uh, falling of fire, if you will, happens in the month of Nisan, which is, of course, the month of redemption. This is when God's glory is coming down. There's an interesting statement here in the Art School Humash to the uh, first verse where it says, Vayhi, it was, and uh, in context, Vayhi by Yom Hashimini, it was on the eighth day. So it says, the sages teach that the word Vayhi often indicates that trouble or grief is associated with the narrative. That's from Megillah 10b. So the question becomes, what sadness could there have been that on such a joyous day of the first of Nisan, how could there be something sad when we're talking about the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle being erected and the uh, glory of God coming down and filling, um, not just filling the tabernacle, but actually uh, his fire consuming the altar. What could, what could be a bad thing? So it says here, Rabbi Yisrael of Rezin notes that Sforno comments that until the sin of the golden calf, there was no need for a center of holiness. Every Jew was worthy of the divine presence. After that calamitous national downfall, it became necessary to build a tabernacle as a resting place for the Shekinah. 
So prior to the golden calf, what it's saying here is the Shekinah had desired to rest, as it were, in the uh, in each Jew. But after the sin of the golden calf, that was not possible. So the Shekinah needs a resting place. So now we have the tabernacle. And it just made me think about the fact that now Yeshua, one of the prophecies of the Mashiach coming was and is, that the Spirit of God would rest upon all flesh. And so this is what um, we experience now, that every single person, every single Jew who believes in the Mashiach, can have the Ruach HaKodesh making uh, his home in us. Now, many people, I should just comment here, because many people, there is a... Uh, I believe a, a counter spirit, not to get too much off into this, but people say, well, I'm, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you? So do you eat kosher to keep Shabbat? No, the Spirit doesn't tell me to do that. It's the wrong spirit. So uh, you say, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but I don't follow God's law. That's not the Spirit of God. You're filled with the Spirit, all right. It's just not God's Spirit. I mean, that's just a, that's not an attempt to be dismissive of anybody's faith. It's not an a, a attempt to be um, discourteous. It's just an attempt to be forthright and honest um, because the Spirit of God is not going to lead you away from God. That would be counterintuitive to the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God is the Spirit of God, then he's going to lead you in the way of God, not in the way of another God. If that's the case, if you're doing something that some other God would do, like eat pig, then obviously you're filled with that Spirit. That's just the reality. So... It's always helpful for a physician to be honest with the patient, right? doesn't help to say, actually, I don't think you're sick at all, even though you know you're sick. So be why? Why is it not helpful? Because there's no way to get better, right? If you don't, it's like the Alcoholic Anonymous or whatever. If you can't admit that you're an alcoholic, then you'll never get rid of being an alcoholic. All right. You know what I mean. Y'all are all very intelligent people. And so I don't need to elaborate on that any further. So <clears throat> let me share with you some insights here. First of all, about Baal Because I mentioned it's the first of Nisan. So let me give you a Baal here. We haven't heard from Baal in a long, long time. And uh, here is Baal He's getting jealous. He said, how come I'm not in the Aliyah day? It's, uh, you're not fulfilling your contract. So we want to be uh, bringing in the Baal It says here, uh, on the eighth day, Moshe summoned. It says the gematria of this phrase is 1061. It is equi equal to that of Hayabayom Rosh Chodesh Nisan. It was on the, on the Rosh Chodesh Nisan. So the actual gematria of the opening phrase on the eighth day, Moshe summoned, is actually equal to the phrase it was on the day of Rosh Chodesh. Moreover, he says, uh, It was on the eighth day. Moshe said, Because I resisted for seven days at the burning bush when God was trying to encourage me to be the redeemer and to be the uh, spokesperson, I resisted. I said, I don't want the job. Find somebody else. Moshe said, because I resisted for seven days at the burning bush, I merited to serve as a Kohen for only seven days. So the moral of the story is that Hashem had originally um, desired, if you will, that Moses should become the Kohen Gadol. But we have free choice. We can choose to do God's will or we can choose to resist it. And so Moses resisted for seven days. And as a result... 
His brother Aaron became the Kohen Gadol. And so God said, okay, you're only going to be a Kohen for seven days. And after that, it's it. It all goes to your brother. So when I was just reading that a second ago, it made me think of something. There is a um, a false doctrine that exists in um, certain messianic uh, circles called uh, divine invitation. The uh, idea, the theory, and again, um, I'm about to, I, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt myself, but it seems like whenever I espouse a messianic idea, somebody inevitably will tell me, well, that's not what we believe. And the reason is, is because they don't even know what they believe. And I don't mean that, again, I'm not trying to be discourteous or mean. I just It's just that um, it's so confusing, it changes. But I, I digress. That was probably unnecessary. So let me just say that my understanding of the divine invitation um, that I've read, unless it's changed recently, is that if you are a Messianic, or excuse me, if you're a Gentile, Messianic, Gentile, whatever, you have a divine invitation. God is saying, I divinely invite you to uh, keep the Torah. But you're not required to. So the premise is it's an invitation. It's not a command. However, if you're Jewish, you absolutely have to uh, do it, um, which, of course, creates two separate classes of people. It creates two different meals at the same dinner table for two types of different children. All of that is extraordinarily problematic, but I've talked about that at length, and you don't want to hear it anymore. So um, Let's just deal with divine invitation for a second, because it just reminded me when I was reading that story about how Moses was invited by God to be the Redeemer, and Moses said, no, thank you, and did that work out well for Moses? Ultimately, no. So when it comes to a divine invitation, when the king invites you somewhere, he's not asking. Um, It's like when Yeshua taught the parable, go out and invite everybody to the banquet. And his servants came back and said, nobody's coming. Was the king like, oh, well, that's fine. I mean, they could come if they want to. It's fine. Um, let's see. Um, go find somebody else. No, he was angry. He was upset. Because when the king invites you somewhere, he's not asking. So the concept of divine invitation, if in fact that is true, if in fact the king has divinely invited you, You should know that you should show up. You should know that not accepting the invitation is not going to work out well for you. Is that clear? Do we understand that? So when you're invited by the king, you should just know that he's not, it's not a suggestion. He's, it's a, it's a polite way of saying I command you. So anyway, that should be obvious, but apparently not. All right. So moving right along. I just want to share some insights here from the, uh, what is this, the Kehol Tumash introduction. Very fascinating concepts, um, and I want them to want to share them with you. With respect to the introduction of this Torah portion. Okay, so it says, The number eight, in contrast, is associated with the notion of surpassing the bounds of nature. Now, that's something that we've um, discussed at length in years past. Eight is always, it's the number of new beginnings, okay? So it's every male Jewish child is initiated into the covenant through circumcision on the eighth day following his birth. This so happens, that's also the day uh, in, in which an animal becomes fit for sacrifice. So you're not allowed to sacrifice a lamb until the eighth day of its existence on earth. 
So a child is circumcised on the eighth day because at that moment, that's when he is worthy of becoming a living sacrifice. Also, as we read in another Aliyah a while back, when the father presents his son for circumcision, it is as if, the sages say, it's as if he is presenting all the sacrifices that were offered in the temple, which means what? Which means, if we put the logical, we fall out to its logical conclusion, a human being can be made equal to all the sacrifices. So therefore, if Yeshua offers himself up, and we say his offering was, in terms of spiritual power and authority, equal to all the sacrifices, and everybody says, no way, Jose, that's not possible. We'll say, well, then how is it that when a, a man offers up his child to be circumcised, it's as if he offered every offering? But anyway, um, so every male Jewish child is initiated into the covenant through circumcision on the eighth day following his birth, signifying the power granted to him to overcome his body's natural drives. The day following the seventh day of, of Sukkot, the holiday of Shimon Zeret, takes the theme and lessons of Sukkot, which celebrates the brotherhood of all humanity and focuses them on the Jewish people as the chosen nation that transcends the natural goals of human civilizations by disseminating divine consciousness. The holiday of Hanukkah, the commemoration of the miraculous uh, victory of light over darkness, is also a, a holiday of eight days and therefore has the same theme. But, so, so we're establishing here that eight represents new beginnings, okay? Now, there is a key to this, however. So just because eight is new beginnings, it does not negate the seven that we just were having, right? So it says, nevertheless, although there is a quantum difference between seven and eight, the fact that the eight is called the eight demonstrates that it's somehow a continuation of the preceding seven. That without the seven unmiraculous days of inauguration, there cannot be a miraculous eighth day. This is because God made his miraculous intervention dependent upon us doing all that we can within the natural order to prepare it for such a revelation. True, God's gesture of opening the gates of the unattainable is still considered an unearned divine gift rather than a reciprocal response to our efforts. So there, there, that, what I just read, in case you missed it, completely destroys the false idea that Jews work for their salvation. It's not it at all. It has nothing to do with it. We understand that God's miracles, his miraculous salvation, and all other miracles are all undeserved gifts. However, that does not negate our part in preparing it's like a, a farmer who prepares his field for harvest. We recognize that God calls the rain, causes the rain. In fact, it's God himself who causes the crop to, to spring forth. If you really think about it, a seed becoming a plant that bears fruit is a miracle. It's all from God. The whole, because look, there's no guarantee that we're going to plant the grain, that even if we got a good rain and we had fair weather, there's no guarantee that we're even going to get the crop. There could be all hundreds of things that could go wrong. Pestilence and who knows whatever 
could go wrong. So we're dependent upon God completely. The harvest, every harvest is a miracle. However, that does not mean that we shouldn't prepare the field. If we prepare the field and we till up the ground and plant the seed and do everything necessary, and then we receive a harvest, can we, we, can we honestly say that we receive the harvest because of our own efforts? No. It's all an undeserved gift. However, it does not negate our action in it. That is the Jewish idea of following Torah. We follow Torah, why? Because A, it's God's will, and B, it's our part. But everything that happens to us, we see as God's grace and mercy. So, it says, Since our efforts can in no way compare to God's supernatural response, we give him all the credit. Nevertheless, without our prior preparatory efforts, no supernatural revelation can take place. That's the dichotomy. Without our preparing the field, the harvest can't come. And yet the harvest is all God's work. Doesn't mean that we're working for our salvation. It just means that God has put some laws into uh, motion that we have to follow. We cannot expect God's miracles if we're not preparing our field for God's harvest. So in the Messianic area, it goes on to say that uh, we're going to experience, there's going to be a flip. Right now, we live in the natural and we see through natural eyes. And so when we see miracles, they appear to us to be anomalies. Like the natural order, you know, and then all of a sudden the sea parts and we think, oh my gosh, that was a great miracle. Of course, we, what we don't realize is that nature itself is a miracle. The fact that we have a sunlight right now is a miracle. The fact that we have air is a miracle. Clouds are a miracle. All of nature is miraculous. And I don't mean metaphorically. I mean literally. All of it is perpetuated every day by God himself. As I've said before, the grass that grows in our yards is literally growing at the command of God. He is... He didn't just put the universe in play and, and left, went to get a coffee. Um, actually, he is intricately involved in creation every day. But in the Messianic area, that era, that's going to flip. And it says, I love the way it puts here. It says here that when the Mashiach comes and back, what was formerly viewed as supernatural will become to us natural. And what was considered natural will become to us the anomaly. That, my friends, will be a, a result of our entire conscious consciousness and our entire perspective being elevated from the realm of what it is now to the realm of godliness. Now, Parasha Shemini includes within it the, the chapter, one of the two chapters on kosher eating. Chapter 11 of the book of Leviticus. The other one is Devarim chapter 14. Okay. So there, what I love what they're saying here about the connectivity between the kashrut and this concept of supernatural and the concept of the eight. So there's a statement here. It says, it is stated in the Midrash that one of the reasons God permitted us to eat certain animals and forbade us to eat others 
is in order to refine us. The basic refinement effect by observing these laws is the self-control we gain by submitting to limitations on what we may eat. For this, From this perspective, there is nothing repugnant about the forbidden animals per se, physically or otherwise. The Jewish people are told to refrain from eating them simply because God decreed that they should not. So, kosher eating equals holiness, and I would suggest we should not cheapen it by trying to come up with some type of alternative reason. For instance, we eat kosher because it's healthier. That's not true, actually. Because I can tell you right now that one of our uh, HCOs came into town, Jenea. She made this amazing chocolate cake. It had like 25 different types of chocolate in it. It was made with, I don't know what, but it was like divine. I don't even like chocolate cake. I really don't. Rebecine will tell you. I don't even like chocolate cake. It's weird. I'm a weird person because I don't like chocolate. But I don't like chocolate cake. And I had a big old piece of this chocolate cake, and it was amazing. And it was 100% kosher. And there was nothing about it that was even remotely healthy. Okay? So I'm just telling you that kosher eating is not necessarily more healthy. A chicken is not necessarily cleaner, not necessarily cleaner than a uh, rabbit. If you've ever raised chickens, you know what I mean? So we just, we just had to keep it in the realm of why do we eat kosher? Because it's, it's holiness. That We don't need to cheapen it by trying to assign it some other type of reason. So it says, God's division, it says here, of the animal kingdom into permitted and forbidden, decreeing that certain animals defile us spiritually if we consume them and defile us ritually if we touch or carry them, automatically creates a part of creation that potentially opposes divinity. See, the reality is when we eat unclean, or excuse me, when we eat unkosher, this includes eating a uh, beef that has not been ritually slaughtered and poultry has not been ritually slaughtered, that well, you don't realize, you may or may not realize, it actually defiles you. It dumbs you down spiritually. So it says, the world itself, in contrast, makes no distinction between kosher and non-kosher order. Well, that's reminds me of Paul's letter when he says, why are you trying to submit yourself to the base things of the world? And people and churches all across the world think that he's talking about kosher laws. Well, it says right here that the world makes no distinction between kosher and non-kosher. So the base things of the world are actually not eating kosher. It says, by, by determining which animals are permitted, that is, which are conductive or conducive, excuse me, to divine consciousness and which are forbidden, that is, antithetical to divine consciousness, the Torah transforms the world's natural undifferentiated assortment of animals into a school for human refinement. In so doing, it makes the natural world supernatural. The seven world becomes an expression of the divine eight. In other words, when we choose to, to eat kosher, we are choosing to live in the supernatural world. Think about it. Because the world does not make a distinction between what is kosher and what is not kosher. And as a result, that is the natural world. So when you eat unkosher, you're living in the natural realm. 
And then when you eat kosher, you're elevating yourself out of the natural realm into the supernatural realm. My friends, this is one of the reasons why I am opposed to the concept of Messianic Gentile and or Noahide. Everybody says, oh, there's a there's a place for Noahides. But, but, but if you actually dive into Jewish thought, what you find is that if you're a Gentile and not a Jew, whether you're a Noahide or whatever, a, a righteous Gentile, whatever, you're not in the same covenant because you're not eating kosher for one. Let's just stick with this. You're not in the supernatural order. And this is why many, many commentators have said that non-Jews do not live in the supernatural order. So I submit to you, if that's the case, then how can we possibly encourage people just to remain Gentiles, even righteous Gentiles, Zionistic Gentiles, God-fearers, Noahides, Messianic Gentiles, whatever. How can we encourage people to live there when we are intentionally and knowingly keeping them in another realm below where we are. What level of arrogance is that? When I know that everything that I have is an absolute gift, why in the world would I not want to include others in that same gift? There's nothing I did to earn it, so what? how am I allowed to keep somebody else from accepting it? What kind of, moreover, what kind of person does that make me? Knowing that I've been been given a free ride in God's divine castle of blessing, and for me not to share that gift with somebody and, and encourage them to accept it as well, what type of person does that make me? I won't answer that question. I'll let you answer it. All right, continuing on this theme. Got a few seconds left here. In this light, he said, they say, we can understand why the account of the eighth day of the installation rites of the tabernacle is paired, it's paired with the laws of kashrut and purity rather than the account of the preceding seven days. So in other words, the laws of kashrut are paired with the eighth day of new beginnings, the eighth day of trans, uh, transcension, the eighth day of divine fire coming down is coupled with kashrut. Why wasn't the Kashrut laws put in Parashah Zav? Why? Because Parashah Zav dealt with the seven days. Kashrut is coupled with the eight days. Therefore, when you become a new creation, when you go from the seven to the eight, when you become born again, when you elevate into a new covenant, you naturally keep the Kashrut laws. Why? Because they're coupled with that reality. A new creature. A new creature has a new diet. So it says, both the account of the events of the eighth day and the laws following are expressions of the true purpose of creation. The revelation of supranatural divine consciousness within the natural physical world. So it says, the account of the final eighth day of the installation rites when the divine presence openly descended to earth inspires us to yearn for the ultimate revelation of God's presence on the earth. That is the final redemption. The laws of permitted and forbidden animals, which express the idea of transforming reality into the vehicle of divine consciousness, gives us both the tools to actualize this idea as well as a foretaste of the true transformation of nature into divine consciousness, which will occur with the final redemption. In other words, every time we sit down to a kosher meal, we are having a foretaste, pun intended, 
of the supernatural world to come. That's how we live in the supernatural within the natural. End of our Aliyah today. I hope that you have a beautiful, amazing, and wonderful day today. I will look forward to seeing everybody tomorrow as we continue with the second reading of Parashah Shemini. Shalom, shalom. Have a beautiful day. Thank you.